Hello and welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. It's been a little while since we put out some product and really there are a variety of reasons but the basic one is that I've been extremely busy and I continue to be extremely busy. The second one is that with the pandemic I've been doing all of my teaching work through Zoom online and that's been going on since February. So the idea of placing myself in front of a screen to have another conversation with a guest and then stay in front of a screen for all the editing, just doesn't really appeal at all, as you can probably understand, especially if you've been going through a similar process to me. In fact, my eyes are starting to protest. They've said enough, Matthew. Stop staring at bloody screens. So there it is. Now, that's not really what you want to know. Um, What you want to know is what the podcast is actually going to do. And that's why we're here today, of course. Well, I will be getting back to interviewing guests. The original intention had been to intersperse a kind of personal, self-generated episode with a guest interview, so that it's just been hard. It's been hard to find guests that I actually really, really want to speak to, or to find guests that I definitely would like to speak to, but the topics are just not coming. And one of the reasons for that, and one of the reasons why you'll be hearing what you're going to hear today, is that The present moment we live in is so intense and so high speed and there's so much going on that I think many of us are called to act. For some people that means to get into the, well, the dark stuff, the the mud, the shit, the dirt and engage politically. We're seeing a lot of protests going on. That's going to continue, I think, for some time and change shape and warp and take different kinds of avenues of expression. We do live in polarised times, and that's why I think there's an element of danger to all this. But hey, I'm getting ahead of myself. The fact is, like many of you, I am pulled into looking at, reading, listening to, speaking to, speaking about, hearing others talk about, both personally and online, the whole world, really, of mad, eventful, intense happenings. So that's what this is. I've basically decided to write something. The writing ended up becoming an exploration of a whole variety of themes, a kind of, you know, mildly cathartic expression of thoughts that I've been playing around with that just kind of coalesced and came together into a text. The text is relatively long. In fact, it's a series now. And I decided that since I don't have the time to produce original content or interview guests, I might as well turn them into audio texts here. We know we live in an age in which people tend to read less. I've generally not given much of a damn about that and write what I want to write. And this often means relatively long texts. And I just assume that people will figure out whether it's worth reading or not, just as I do when I go through the various sources of texts and sites and magazines and newspapers that I frequent. We're all learning, in a sense, to refine and improve the quality of our social attention. This is the first of this series. I'm breaking them up, really, just to give you material, but also to give me a chance to put out the first part of the material, which I'm happy with, and allow things to occur and adjust what I might change or edit in the second part. And then the third part. The plan is also to keep bringing back these topical subjects and items to the practicing life. I will do that more in some episodes and less in others. And if you listen carefully, you'll probably figure out why that is. Now, two more points about this. 
the speed of change is so intense that even as I read this, write this, talk about this, think this, events are evolving and changing. I find myself listening to a podcast with Brett Weinstein and his wife. And guess what? They're talking about much of the same themes I'm talking about. Hokai Sabor, too, picking up on topics I've been thinking about. Glenn Wallace, too, some of the you know, long-term favourites of the podcast. I have a look on The Garden newspaper. And finally, one of their regular opinion piece writers has woken up. He's actually saying, hold on a minute. Maybe the feeding of polarisation is actually not doing us any good. Yeah, of course. Well done. Keep going. Thank you. The challenge, of course, is that you mention names like the Weinsteins, who, if we're going to be honest, are actually very reasonable and sensible members of the ongoing cultural palaver happening. But even so, they obviously get thrown under the bus by both sides. Now, I'm not going to promote their material or say you should listen to them. If you regularly listen to this podcast, you probably do already. But I'm going to suggest that what makes the challenge for people like myself interesting is to speak to that which everybody is speaking to or pulled into whilst trying to free oneself or free myself from being caught in the inevitable attraction, repulsion and indifference dynamic that all of you practitioners and venturers of the practicing life are all too familiar with. How do I engage with this stuff creatively and critically, critically and creatively? How do we resist the impulse to push one way or another when it's so exciting and enticing to do so? Well, in a sense, my series of texts now are a demonstration or a performance of how that might be done. Sometimes I may veer close to one of those positions I've just defined, attraction, repulsion or indifference. But it might be worth you all listening to be aware of that dynamic in yourselves. Where do I get pulled in? Ooh, I like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Where do I get repulsed? What the hell? hell? You don't know what you're talking talking about. about, But but, don't you know? know, And and, or indifference. Well, who cares? cares? I'm just going to switch off. off. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I heard that already. And so what? Yeah. These are some of the internal voices that we tend to play out as a performance of these three dysfunctional modalities, all too human modalities, but modalities nonetheless that usually prevent us from producing anything original or thinking creatively and critically. That's my invitation. Take it or leave it. I trust you'll do what's right for you. I am still coaching. I have a few spots available, but if you're interested, you can either get in touch directly or you can go to the imperfectbuddha.com website. I have uh, a potential event coming up soon that some of you may actually be able to participate in. I'll uh, mention that in one of these episodes once I have a date for it. I also continue to have that wonderful little donations button on the Imperfect Buddha website. It's on the right if you scroll down. And in fact, it's done exactly what I wanted it to do. It allows people to throw a bit of coin in my way, hand over a few bucks, well, in my case, euros, if they feel so inclined. I'm ready to share a bit of love and a thank you for the content that I put out. 
Um, we live in a culture in which a lot is received and taken for nothing. We get used to that. And it's good to give something back to keep exchange clean. And as I always suggest, if you've listened to a lot of the podcast episodes and got quite a bit out of it, well, why not make a small donation as a token of thank you? Uh, I actually give a percentage of whatever I receive to the charities of my choice. And I'll tell you, that's Amnesty International. I donate regularly to Extinction Rebellion. No, I don't agree with everything they do or all their tactics, but I'm on board with the need to do something. And the environment is my number one concern in terms of global issues and activism. So that's where I put my money and my action locally. That's all for now. Here it is, the first part. Living under the umbrella of wonkiness. Entangled life, complex world. The preamble. The truth is that writing about these themes in today's world is not at all easy. You know this. I know this. We all know this. But how well do we articulate these feelings and the why and an adequate response? For me personally, this has nothing to do with the call-out culture or cancel culture that sends many a writer and speaker into a panic because it really doesn't affect folks like me who are on the margins of niche culture. It is not to do with allegiance to an identity group either. Identity politics in its American, Canadian and British manifestations is pretty much non-existent here in Italy. Rather, it is because of the contentious relationship that we Europeans, and especially us Brits, have with the United States and the leakage of its culture and norms into our world. We are simultaneously part of the great American experiment and apart from it. Partly able to respond to it, partly able to step outside its influence and catch a much-needed breath. One that is often unavailable to those deep within its quagmire. Presumably this is the condition of being under the umbrella of a superpower, any superpower. Responding to the cultural and political leakage is often a must, even if we are not American ourselves, or would even like to stop caring about what's happening in the States. Superpowers loom large, and are near impossible to avoid. Having relatives and friends in the States as I do is actually far less important from this perspective. I used to visit regularly, but I stopped after 9-11, when the rules to enter the country became so absurd. What ties me to the country, really, is actually the odd special relationship that has long existed between the UK and the US, a kinship that goes beyond just a shared language. Our identities overlap they bump up against each other. To bring this to today, I did start to wonder if Europe was going to have to start to look to itself more going forwards, especially in response to the Trump era. Trump is a symbol of many things, of course, almost all of them being deeply negative. But his call to turn America's attention inwards has meant a reconfiguration of his role as a world leader. 
You may hear such a political move as mere rhetoric, especially if you're in the States, but many parts of the world have already been directly impacted by this retreat, and Trump's undermining of relationship with key allies has not sat well with European leaders. Now, the typical reaction that follows from a variety of sources is to look immediately to China as the next big thing, all the while feeling dread over its threat to liberal democracy, human rights, and, of course, the rule of law. Locally, however, meaning in countries outside these two behemoths, Trump's actions mean a loss of reliance on a dominant figure that once guaranteed certain norms and reference points, politically and culturally, for a good deal of the last century and much of this. The looming, towering, cultural presence of America is in retreat. The loss of American dominance and its projection of its own status onto the world of leader unhooks the European continent from the reliance it had on a constant stream of culture, aspiration and sense-making apparatus. Even when the quality of that cultural export has been awful, cue endless reruns of bland US cop dramas on certain Italian TV channels, it has always provided a stable reference point against which European cultural products and European minds and European desires could react. The untethering of Europe from the US may be a blessing in this regard, or it may not. Chinese culture is so alien and so restricted by its authoritarian constraints that I don't believe it will ever replace American cultural products or the outpouring of its cultural life. Mandarin as a language and the antipathy towards China amongst Asian countries also means that culture minus language plus immense constraints means that even if China does become the most dominant superpower this century, its cultural influence will likely remain limited. It will have to find other means to convince the world to follow in its footsteps. And one can only imagine how dark such steps may end up being in a worst-case scenario. Either way, no one aspires to be Chinese or truly desires to be part of the Chinese experiment. America sold a dream that we could all imagine being part of. China represents a necessary relationship in a politics of pragmatism, or, more commonly perhaps, a dangerous, dystopian nightmare. A further point is that the politics of America have seeped into Europe in great part through the doorway of the UK, often weakening to varying degrees as it spreads across the continent. Now, of course, it goes in other directions too. It leaps across both oceans, arriving in Australia, New Zealand, and in non-English language countries. It gets all over the place. But for us over here in Europe, its doorway really is the UK. Now, sometimes its specific cultural political exports fizzle out before reaching the further corners of this continent, or they get waylaid in certain countries, they mutate, and then arrive in markedly different forms months and years later. Sometimes, and thankfully so, it never arrives at all. 
This scenario leaves us, as I described at the start, simultaneously part of the American experiment whilst apart from it. What an odd situation we find ourselves in. Now, my text initially emerged out of a response to recent events. It is a sort of meditation on the complexity we are currently living through and our incapacity to be honest about how little we know. As everything is so manic these days, with speed-defining cultural production and destruction, it is a response to where we are this year more broadly. Like the times we live in, it involves complexity and simultaneous events and layers of meaning and concern. I could repeat that as a mantra, for this complexity really is at the heart of what is much of our collective incapacity to respond effectively to the multiple challenges we face, or to at least respond honestly and in a best-case scenario, openly. For we are challenged on multiple fronts. Now, this text could have been shorter, but writing and speaking to such a diverse audience as I do, it has been essential to establish context, or the complexity I speak to will make little sense. I bet that you will make it to the end if what I share resonates or irritates sufficiently. <laughs> you will find something better to do with your time if it doesn't. And I will add one more thing before diving into the meat. I make this point so that you and I are clear with each other, and you know where I stand. America has been accumulating unpaid cultural and political bills since its inception. The last century has seen us witness failure after failure to address profound dysfunction at its heart, even when the opportunity to do so has arisen. The latest example of a lost opportunity seems to be Bernie's failure to win the Democratic candidacy. Whatever you might make of him, he is a mature adult, and one that I think is capable of addressing many of the issues that are emerging at present in America. Certainly, he stands a better chance of doing so than Biden the opportunities to address imbalances in American society have really gone repeatedly unchecked, ignored, and even scorned at. But the fact is that democracies only survive in a carefully tuned balancing act, and they thrive when that balance is honed. Now, I was pretty much born into the Reagan era, and I grew up witnessing the tandem neoliberal era that bonded the US and UK together as a tag team, with Margaret Thatcher at the helm in the UK. I yearned for rebellion, revolution, and change as a consequence, and I took part in it on occasion. Then there was the emerging awareness of the ecological disaster we were facing, already coming out in the 80s and then the 90s, which is when I entered my teenage years. Then the war in Iraq took place and it destroyed mainstream political capital, perhaps for a generation. And that included, of course, that which we had in the UK 
on the left. I desired a massive collective uprising to destroy the excesses of capitalism, the injustice of war, the corrupt expression of warped, disfigured democracy. We protested Bush, we shouted down Blair, we sought a new world, and we were right to do so. Those dreams were destroyed through failure, and the inability of the political class to adequately respond. Blair's betrayal ran very, very deep, and was a core drive for what would become the short-lived Corbyn era. Unsurprisingly, Labour has now shifted towards the centre, and by doing so it may actually win an election down the road. Who knows? But anyway, after Blair's dishonourable exit, things actually died down for a bit. People got distracted. Younger folk looked to hedonism for escape. People grew up and had kids, and the next generation came along. I find myself in conflict. And no doubt many of you do too. The rise of the new protest movements online and now in the streets is a mixed bag. Like all protest movements, it has good and bad elements. Good and bad desires, good and bad ideas, and good and bad visions of the world. And because we are more knowledgeable than we have ever been before, the good and the bad are more visible than they have ever been before too. We see what happens when ideas and ideologies are enacted online and in the streets in real time. We bear witness to cops killing, the council culture at its worst, the internal disputes at the New York Times, the Tulsa rally, the pro-Trump supporters carrying guns into public buildings, the failings of the Clinton aristocracy, and today's cacistocracy under Trump. We saw the London riots, the football hooligans, Britain first thugs. We see it all live and shot live and in 4 HD. And we get the live commentary coming from all corners, professional, amateur, improvised, well thought out. A selection of options and insights are on offer and almost immediately. Many telling and retelling interpretive myths according to their ideological leanings. Non-partisan news is harder than ever to find. But to be fair, the news has always been partisan to some degree. It's as if we just had a crash course in media studies, whether we chose to get it or not. We live in an odd world, let's be honest about it. And we still struggle to even recognise and conceive of what this oddness is and what it might mean, especially long-term. For fundamentally, we live in an age that lacks vision, long-term plans, and we certainly don't have the luxury of time to digest this massive array of domino change effects or even to begin to make sense of it. We are making sense of it live and together, and most of us seem to be failing pretty badly at this. Now, my instinct is generally to avoid the excesses of reactivity that typically push us into unquestioning allegiance or antagonism. Those two that are being accentuated 
and made worse by the speed of everything. This position is easier to maintain at a distance, and I recognise that. My actual political activity takes place where I live, in my adoptive home of Italy, and more importantly in the region and city where I live. Real-world politics is participatory at its best, and I'm a great believer that healthy democracies demand active and ongoing citizen participation. Engaging politically has been an interesting, how should I say, question throughout my life. Living with a highly politicised father and a completely disinterested mother, who were separated, by the way, meant that that kind of juxtaposition, that kind of obsession and total disinterest were part of the inheritance I had to make peace with. But of course, as some of our more learned listeners know, these things are never just our things. They're part of the social milieu in which we emerge. For a long period of time in my younger years, there was a kind of resignation to poor leadership, a resignation that gripped the UK and US and led towards that kind of disengagement and focus on hedonism. That continued into some of the first years of this century, and I think we could consider it actually as an anti-democratic act, one that was most likely encouraged and pushed by the leaders of the time. For me, it took an Italian intellectual to wake me up and remind me of a very simple truth in the early noughties. La democrazia è faticoso, Matteo. That is, democracy requires hard work. It's fatiguing, it's tiring, it's demanding. Now, even though I had engaged in protests and voted and read up on things, I was still part of a general wave of disengagement. And Corrado Algas, a person I've mentioned before, really was just yet another reminder that the whole project of democracy, not just in my little world, has this overbearing characteristic. It demands much of us if it is to function. And let's be honest, it took quite a bit of decline, serious decline, to wake up the younger generation to the need to accept the graft of engaging and acting politically. We are seeing the consequences of that now, and in many ways it is welcome, even as it often displays its characteristics of dysfunction. The triggers that keep coming and firing up further levels of rage and disgust at the imperfect world we live in, let's be honest, is timely. This is both an amazing and needed response, but often a confused and poorly directed one. Despite claims from anarchists, radical democrats, and utopian dreamers, leadership is essential in any movement. Occupy Wall Street fizzled out without it. And that's just one example. The disdain and antagonism towards leadership that I have found to be so common the further left you go has meant decades of infighting among smaller political groups on the left. It may be one of the reasons why the destruction of existing systems can be so attractive. But as the Slovenian philosopher and cultural critic Slavoj Žižek, in an unusually sensible mode, keeps reminding us, 
What comes after the revolution, Jeremy? As a person who is more sympathetic to left-wing political causes, and as someone who has always voted and acted politically within a broad sphere of what constitutes the left, I am nonetheless a person that criticises what operates within that realm. Now this angers people, it annoys and irritates. And in highly polarised times, it seems symbolically as personal, as evidence of betrayal, or for the most delusional, a sign that you are secretly a part of the enemy. There would be much to be said on these themes too, and bits of this emerge in the text below. Needless to say, the left deals in critique, aiming it outwards in ways that can be understood as one of its greatest contributions to our collective knowledge. At the great feast, the left has been busy, looking outwards. Because you know what? If you think about it, the left is very bad at receiving its own critique, even when it is designed to help, to highlight contradictions, hypocrisy, mistakes, confusion, and importantly today, ideological capture. The type that converge on mass hysteria or pure ignorance at its worst. I am here, in many ways, responding to this inability, made far worse by the personalization of politics, the politicization of everything, and the other facets that make up the tumultuous and polarized political landscape today. Consequences are not controlled by whatever narrative you push. This is a hard truth that is doggedly resisted by those feeling most emboldened by the excesses of these waves of contemporary politics. Now, despite the conflict I might feel about today's political eruption, I am also cognizant of the fact that change is never going to take place in a country like the US without massive upheaval, and that these characteristics of modern politics are a reaction to what came before. Race is clearly a central part of the long-term problems that the US faces. It clearly operates as an existential core in the American psyche. And if it must be the trigger for a revolt against the highly dysfunctional status quo of American decline, specifically a decline for the masses and the preservation of wealth, influence and opportunity, for the ever-shrinking few, then so be it. Part of what I have written next is a response to how we might respond to a world in which live, hyper-real, multiple manifestations of human desire are taking place. It critiques the excesses of left-wing culture to some degree, but only because this is part of the incredible fervour that we are all currently caught by. It ultimately aims to highlight a way out of ideological capture, not to some pristine post-ideological realm of meditative bliss or freedom, but to a more mixed and varied cultural realm of human struggle, becoming and searching, 
beyond polarization and the anti-intellectualism that continues to operate at the heart of much of American culture, even activist culture, even that which appears to be informed by high culture. Remember, critical and creative. It looks at the performative nature of knowledge in a world where our ignorance is ever more clearly on display. It asks the question of what would happen if we were all, and I mean all, a little more honest about just how little we actually know. As for the rest, I wish the protesters a reasonably peaceful revolution. The end of Trump, the rise of a sane political class actually capable of shifting the states towards a saner direction that serves the many and not the few. And for my lefties out there, I'm afraid that has to include all of those Trump voters, and that that's a huge problem you guys are going to have to figure out at some point. The same goes for Britain. What do we do about the middle? What do we do about the Conservatives? What do we do about those who just don't see the world as we do? Big challenge must be faced. One question there really is, can a democracy provide that? Well, there's the question for the left, right? Do they actually want democracy? To many, it appears the answer is a strong no. Make of that what you will. If there's a line in the sand that I must draw, it is there. I'm with democracy, and I'm with the struggles that are held within it. That may be the point where you and I depart. Whichever direction you or I choose to take, there is a very, very long road ahead. And I wish all of you a good journey. What follows is part one.